I'm not looking for really obscure material to make pictures about because I want people to be confused about them. I'm not looking for that. <laughs> it's usually stuff that's generally available and I think everybody should be somewhat familiar with. That's important. And if, if people are going to art museums, then I, I would think that people are also taking some responsibility to know something about what the point of going to an art museum should be. For Kerry James Marshall, painting is a problem to be solved. Not for him, the self-expression of the abstract expressionists. Rather, this modern American master takes his cue from Europeans of the past, drawing on the techniques and visual language of art history to make a powerful comment about absence and representation. Earlier this year, the sale of his painting Past Times made him the highest paid African-American artist ever. But his eye is on far more than the record books. Through engaging with the past, he hopes to reshape the paradigm of the future and bring African-American voices into the narrative. I'm Augusta Machelari, and I sat down with him for the big interview. Kerry James Marshall, welcome to the big interview. It's a real pleasure to be joining you uh, just before your new exhibition is opening at David's Werner Gallery. So we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I'd just like to talk a bit about your childhood relationship to painting, because I'm aware that all children paint, but you at an early age knew that you wanted to be in the business of producing images. Yeah. Although, I mean, at the time, I couldn't have told you that it was about being an artist as a professional because I didn't know what that was. But I knew there was something about images that I had been looking at that excited me enough to make me know that I wanted to do that thing. I wanted to make images like those that would make other people feel the way I was feeling while I was looking at the ones I was seeing. So, I mean, that really was the beginning of it for me. And it started really early. That first, the experience was in kindergarten. At what point did it come to be paintings rather than photographic image making or draftsmanship that kind of captured your interest? over the long span, I mean, when you're you're growing up, the more things you experience, the more things you're aware of, the broader your sense of what's possible starts to become. And so I looked at everything, and and I was interested in everything. But Cameras are equipment. I mean, it's like to do photography, that means you have to have apparatus. And then as a young person, you got to spend money to get the film developed. So, I mean, the, the cost in doing that kind of thing doesn't immediately present itself to you as a possibility. So you, you pick up the thing that's easiest and closest at hand. And so it's pencils and it's paint. And you do what you can with those things. When you're in school, so in about third grade, I believe it, is when they first introduce you to the library. And back then, as opposed to now, I guess, we used to have to get a library card. They take you to the school library first and teach you how to use the Dewey Decimal System for looking up books. And then we went on a field trip to the public library, and that was the first place you got a library card. You go into the library and you realize there's a section of the library where there are books on art. And I just simply looked at every single book that was on the shelf that was about art. And, of course, most of that was about painting. Early on, my sense of what had been done and what seemed really good and what was interesting, I mean, was kind of expanded by that experience. And I just simply continued on that route. I feel like there's a point at which, sort of for a child or a young person, 
painting and image making becomes less an exercise in imagination and becomes kind of externally constrained or constrained by these expectations to reflect the world around you or later if you go to art school to kind of reflect the kind of narrative of of art and art history how did you find yourself navigating through that if you were looking at images of art from an early age was it never so much about this kind of imagined interior world more about looking well I guess because of the way I started out it was always about what was external I never thought about making art as a kind of self-expressive activity I mean it was always about trying to fit into or, or match the kind of what I saw as the magnificence of things that I'd seen that other people had done I never went through that phase where doing kid art, where that seemed to make sense. <laughs> because if you look at those things that kids are doing and you look at things that professionals were doing, the professional stuff looked better. And so you want to do that. <laughs> I mean, why would you want to do <laughs> something that looked like you were just starting out <laughs> when there was so much else? Um, available to you. Were you copying at this time? Were you kind of working? Oh, I started, but this is how I, how I got interested in materials. Yeah, I was copying things I saw in books. <laughs> this is the funny thing. In, in elementary school, in the bathroom stall where they had the toilet paper, used to be these little square sheets that were folded in, in half that would fit in the toilet paper dispenser. And I found out you could use those as tracing paper. <laughs> <laughs> did you find a way of making them a bit more stable as material? Or did you well, I didn't them? care. <laughs> I didn't care, but you could take, so it's a two-ply sheet. You could take them, split it in half. You got two pieces, and you could see through them. And you, can, you could trace things out of a book. So I used to go to the, excuse myself to go to the bathroom. I'd come back with a wad of toilet paper in my pocket because I needed, I needed it as material. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, those kinds of things. I mean, so then you start saying, okay, well, I don't have to just do this. I can also do this. And this material lets, allows me to do that. I just started building on things like that. I always was, I, I became interested in processes really early. And then I was lucky enough, my third grade teacher used to do the bulletin boards and, and stuff like that for holidays. And I would stay after school and help her do, do that Sometimes, so you learn. I mean, you learn techniques. I don't even know if they still do that. You could take tissue paper. You get tissue paper in different colors, and then you could put some starch, starch on the tissue paper. Put the tissue paper down on the piece of paper, and you pull it up, and it would leave color behind. <laughs> and then she also would show me how to make how to. She she liked painting flowers. And so she would say, oh, you know, if you want to paint a daisy, you paint a daisy like this. If you want to paint a pansy, you paint a pansy like this. And so technique so, uh, started uh, you, to become really important to me really early. You were kind of knowing that there was a right way of doing things. Yeah. And, how and I wanted to do it the right <laughs> way. <laughs> Is that a part of your character? Does that reflect in other aspects of your life? Yeah. I mean, to a degree. I'm interested in knowing how things work. It makes a difference to know how things work and how to make something from nothing, you know, how to take a piece of raw material and convert it into something that can be use, usable. That matters a lot to me. And so I spent a lot of time 
trying to make sure I knew how things work. You then moved to L.A. Well, third grade, I'm in L.A. Third now. grade, you're in right. L.A. So we left out of second grade, then come to California. And this is where you spend your adolescence. Right. And at what point does it become clear that you're going to go to art school? That's not until I'm in junior high. In the States, you go to elementary school until sixth grade. And in sixth grade, you graduate from elementary school. Then you go on to junior high, which they call middle school in some places. You start from seventh grade to eighth grade and ninth grade through junior high school. So when I got to uh, Carver Junior High School, was the junior high uh, near us. When I got there, so I have a brother who's a year older than I am. So he goes one year ahead of me. And so when I follow... I meet teachers who had had him in his class, and so because they had him, they kind of think they know me, too. So they're familiar with me because he was there. And there was one teacher who, Mr. Romitti, who knew that I was interested in, in I was really interested in drawing, more than just about anybody else, it seemed. And so there was an opportunity for junior high school kids to take a class at the Otis Art Institute. But it was supposed to be for, not for a seventh grade, it was supposed to be for somebody else, but he let me do it. He gave it to me. Going there, that was the first time I knew there was a place called like an art school, you know, a place where people went to learn how to do things. And the teacher in that who, who taught that drawing class showed us some pictures from a book called Images of Dignity, the drawings of Charles White, and then told us that Charles White had a studio on campus. He took us up to see that studio. And, and later that day, I came down from that studio visit. Charles, he wasn't in there then, but when we got back to our room, I was copying a picture from that book. And Charles White walked into our classroom. And that, that was the, at that instant, I decided when I finished high school, I was going to go to school at Otis. Hmm. That's where I was going to go to school. Have you continued to copy from, from no. books? When did that stop? Um, well, I mean, early on, I mean, it's like you either copy pictures from books or you hire a model. <laughs> I said, well, that was out of the question. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of fascinating things about art school. So now we were kids in a special class there. So we weren't in the same kinds of classes that adults were. But every now and then you would pass by a room and a, somebody would come out the door and you would look in there. And you would see there were naked people in there. <laughs> 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 Wondering how you get into that class. <laughs> but, but when you look at art history books, you see there are a lot of naked people in pictures. <laughs> and that's where they do it. You know, they do it in places like these art schools. So that's also another one of those things that makes it more fascinating. But it's clear from looking at the history that you need to learn something about how the body is built before you can draw it well. And so the sort of anatomical studies and things you look at. And, it, and the first book I ever bought on my own was one of those big coffee table folios of Leonardo da Vinci. And the, the anatomical drawings and all that stuff were really important to me. So it's, it's this knowing thing that really mattered. So Again, like the underpinning again, system. Again, it really is. It's, it's not what it looks like. It's how you understand it that matters, that always mattered more to me. Moving a bit forwards... I've read that sort of at art school you were making abstract paintings, which you've described as pushing paint around, I think. <laughs> My idea of what art school was was that you went to art school and you learned about everything that was possible to do for artists up to that time. 
So I'm born in 1955, you know, and 55 is almost the end of abstraction, really. Come 1960, 1961, pop art and the reintroduction of imagery and stuff starts to come back in a, in a big way. So the whole cycle had already run its course in a lot of ways by the time I was born. And so, but by the time I got to school, you know, I graduated from high school in 1973. Even pop art was done, <laughs> you know. So the history of those transformations means something. And if you're starting school at a point where you can lay out this sort of historical timeline of the way in which form changed and ideas developed about how you should do things called art, well, my idea was that you, need to, you have to address all that. And my thing was you have to know how all those things work again from the inside out, not just because of the way they look, but why would anybody make that choice as opposed to doing another thing? I did abstract work. I did collage. I did figurative painting. I, I worked, was working with egg tempera because I want to know. And the only way you can make choices, clear choices about what's worth doing is if you know how to do all those things. And so doing the work you were talking about, when I finished, I graduated from Otis in 1978, and I was doing a lot of these sort of non-objective, sort of abstract mixed media collages with found material and paint and things like that. And at a certain point, you, if you do that long enough, <laughs> if I push, yeah, if I push this paint around long enough, it'll eventually kind of coalesce into something that looks kind of nice, <laughs> you know, that you could be kind of interested in. And that wasn't satisfying. Hmm. You know, at a certain point, you've run, you've run out of interest in that, and I did. But so then you come to paint a portrait of the artist as a shadow of his right. former and self. and that was in 1980. 1980, and I feel like that's a really important painting for you. Yeah. Could you describe it and talk a bit about the circumstances of how you came to sort of make it? Part of it was after that period of, of doing the, the abstract work, when, when I just I didn't feel like I, there was anything left to know about how that worked. you got to figure out how to reset your priorities. But I wanted to then also make use of what I, everything that I thought I had learned from looking at sort of classical, you know, Renaissance painting and things like that. I had been reading Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, and I was struck by the idea of invisibility, so the way he articulated it, the way he framed it, which was not the kind of perceptual invisibility if you're familiar with a lot of science fiction and horror movies, I mean, I grew up loving horror movies and science fiction. One of my favorite writers was H.G. Wells. And so, of course, The Invisible Man is the H.G. Wells novel. And then there's the, the movie version of it with Claude Rains as The Invisible Man. You know, of course, he takes his clothes off and he's completely transparent and invisible. But for Ralph Ellison, for black people in the United States, invisibility didn't have anything to do with this sort of a transparency, you know, this being able to see through, but it was a psychological invisibility where you were sort of socially and politically not welcome, not desired to be seen. And so I took that notion of invisibility, which seemed to suggest the kind of simultaneous presence and absence. And I tried to figure out how to make an image that would do that. And that's when I first started, sort of laid out this figure that would be a black figure against the black background, basically. And you figure out how to adjust the color temperature of the two fields so that you could alternately see the figure and not see the figure. And the first one I did was this thing called a portrait of the artist as a shadow of his former self. But I tried to design it 
the same way I thought Michelangelo had designed the Last Judgment, where you take responsibility for the way every shape in the picture fits into a place, and that it fits into a place because it's meant to do a certain thing, that it's meant to move in a certain direction, you know, and that the ellipses and things like that stretched across the picture plane in a certain way. That so I was building that painting up uh, like that, and then I painted it in egg tempera. And it was a way of using a 13th century technique to make a picture that didn't look anything at all like a 13th century painting, to use the, all of the devices they used to compose pictures in the Renaissance, but it still didn't look anything at all like a Michelangelo painting. That's how I was thinking about it. And then it's based on a kind of folk humor that talked about black people being, you not being able to see a black person in the dark unless you see the whites of their eyes and the whites of their teeth that they're smiling. And then he had a white shirt on that was just a triangle. So I'm taking all of those things and, and putting all those things together to arrive at, at that image. And that was the image that really launched me into the, the direction that I started going in and led me to starting to paint my figures using black paint exclusively for the figures. Later than this, you know, you've kind of worked out this way of conflating technical efforts and this deep theoretical underpinning. Since then, your work has, of course, become more visually complex. It draws from a much wider pool of illusions and references. It has this really intense sense of narrative often. Mm -hmm. And it's not self-expressive, as you've said. It's the working out of a right. kind of system. I'd like to know a bit about how you come to find an image and put it on the canvas? What's your research like? How do you compose it? Is it in sketches? And where are you drawing these symbols from? Well, that, that's a lot of different things you just, <laughs> <laughs> you, you just asked about. Just pick your favorite. So, <laughs> because there's the decision to make a certain kind of picture. And then there's the research to find source material or references that can make it believable or understandable. And then there's symbols, which is a whole other thing altogether. I mean, and those things, they're not always present in one picture, although sometimes they are. From that portrait of the artist as a shadow of his former self, I always saw that as a kind of zero degree. It's like going back to a basic fundamental thing and then starting to work up more complexity from there. When it comes to narrative and things like that, I always was always really captivated by the sort of grand history painting tradition. And I wanted to do work that operated in that way, but using black figures and black historical moments or incidents or an idea about that history. So in terms of finding out what's important to do, history was always something that I wanted to use as a basis for making a, a lot of pictures but I always understood that you could never really do those same kinds of history paintings that were done, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred years ago. You can't do those kinds of paintings because I had seen too many other things that happened since then. And so trying to figure out a way that made those kinds of paintings current was a bit of a challenge. But having had that experience doing collage and stuff like that gave me a, a way in because some of the, the modernist imperative was always to make sure that the material and the process was 
up front available. And so this the kinds of fragmentations and ways in which paint has its own sort of identity with the smears and drips and things like that. So all of those things ended up being devices you could use in making these paintings. But the way I approached the history was always a little more oblique than a kind of direct illustration of a story or of a moment. You know, so how do you direct people to historical moments? You don't have to tell all of the story. There are some key elements that have to be present. So if I'm doing a picture about the middle path, like, so let's take, there's a picture called uh, Great America. Well, that picture is sort of, it's a history painting, but it's about the middle passage, but there's nothing in it that, there's no slave ship in it. <laughs> it's reconfigured another kind of way so that the slave ship is embodied in a theme park, amusement park ride that just seems overcrowded with figures who are riding in it. So they don't seem obviously in distress or traumatized. They seem to be having fun, but of course, yes, it's a little overcrowded. <laughs> so these are the ways I'm, when I'm thinking about doing history painting, this is how I'm, I'm thinking about building that history. So it's like it's, a, it's tangential in some kind of way. It's, it's along with this. It's embedded in another thing. The one thing that's, that might be more direct is I have a painting called... Um, the portrait of Nat Turner with the head of his master. Well, I mean, but a couple of ways you could do that. <laughs> but I'm doing that because it's back to the Judith and Holofernes paintings. It's back to the beheading of John the Baptist painting. It's back to those kinds of things. So it always has these kind of almost intertextual illusions. Yeah, always, which, always. as you say, is kind of, it's impossible to go back and just sort of repaint. You can't do that. Right, you, you, you can't do that, yeah. What I'd like to know about is how your expectations of a grasp of history on the part of your audience and how much people should know how educated they should be about it in your mind when they come to see your paintings and how important that is. Well, I mean, you would hope that the population generally is kind of <laughs> generally educated. Everybody goes through a public school experience. I mean, you're supposed to learn something when you go through school. I'm not looking for really obscure material to make pictures about because I want people to be confused about them. <laughs> I'm not looking for that. <laughs> it's usually stuff that's generally available, mm. and I think everybody should be somewhat familiar with that's important. And if, if people are going to art museums, then I, I would think that people are also taking some responsibility to know something about what the point of going to an art museum should be. And you should know a little bit of something, a little bit about what you're going to see. I hope. Mm. Well, quite. Uh, <laughs> you do hope. We don't go to the museum completely blank. Mm. You know, everybody has expectations when they get there. And so when I'm I'm trying to meet some of those expectations that the work you see in the museum should be of a certain kind of quality. It's supposed to be intelligently thought out, and it's supposed to be reasonably well executed. <laughs> I think if all those things are working the way they're supposed to, then the work is available for people to try and read uh, and have a, a meaningful experience, sort of beyond just, oh, that looks nice, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, to decode, I suppose. Yeah. I think what's different is that it, you know, in, in a lot of galleries now, the importance of meaning as opposed to subjective interpretation is mm -hmm. the two. There's no parity between the two. And to kind of come across a painting that you can read yeah. must be a shock to some people. 
But I think but the, the world is that way. I mean, it's like you got to know something about the world you live in. Mm. It's the multiplicity of experiences. So if you go to my show <laughs> down the street, I mean, it's clear that you can do all those things. They are not incompatible with each other. So you got paintings that have this, obviously are constructed around some sort of purposeful meaning. And then you have things that seem to be meaningless. And this is all in the same, it's like it's made by the same person. <laughs> it's in the same space. How come we're not having that kind of dynamic relationship with things when we go all the time? I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, it should be like that. I think. <laughs> I wanted to ask a bit about the record-breaking sale earlier this year about collecting as a political act and the sale of art. Mm -hmm. Because I'm conscious that, you know, if I suddenly had lots of money, I couldn't necessarily wander into the Gagosian and buy a Richard Serra or whatever to install in my garden. Right. That's not the way it works. And a large part of your agenda is having your paintings in institutions. Mm -hmm. There was a description of Sean Coombs as the kind of right buyer for this painting. And I wanted to ask a bit about... Who said that? I think it was your gallerist, but I can't remember. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to ask about what it means to you who buys your work. I mean, if you think about the history of collecting, the history of participation in the artwork, who has access to the museum... I mean, these museums are largely built on the collections of wealthy white aristocrats, you know, who often made a lot of their money as part of the slave trade, too. So you have a system that sort of ends up sort of continuously bringing the benefits of that kind of wealth to the same people who had, were perpetuating some of the problems that colonialism and imperialism and slavery were built in the first place. So you got the same people profiting from that. And then you have black people who, because of the way they came into the, the West, didn't have access to the kinds of excess capital that made collecting art possible, not in a position to profit from work that's made by black people who are now finding their way into the marketplace uh, at a level. It does matter that black people have access to the work of artists, of all artists, but of, in particular of artists of color who are making work, and to have had access to that work at a time when the value of the work starts to increase, that they can also profit from it. Because if it never happens like that, then you are always on the bottom end of the market. You're always the ones watching other people profit from things that you do in the same way that you were always sort of standing on the sideline watching the same imperialists sort of profit from the sale of black people in the first place. To me, it, it's exciting to see black people participating in the market at a level where they can then sort of reap those kinds of benefits too. Because, I mean, what we do know is that the objects that get made will ultimately be sold. Somebody's going to profit from that. There ought to be more black people profiting from that, too. You know, there ought to be more Chinese people profiting from that, too. There ought to be more other people profiting from that, too, instead of just having white people profit from those things. My thanks to Kerry James Marshall. You can visit his latest exhibition, History of Painting, at the David's Werner Gallery in London until the 1st of November. 
The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Augustin Machelari. Thank you very much for listening.